May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. What in the world happened? I mean, what happened? The last time we're reading about the church, it's Pentecost. The Spirit's coming down. They're speaking in other languages. Peter gets up. He preaches this sermon. 3,000 are added to the church that day. They start to share everything they have in common. They start to give food to those who are hungry. I mean, it's enough to make you dance. Right, Ronnie? Sure. Especially when the preacher tells you to dance. I mean, it's enough to celebrate. It's, it's an amazing thing, what's happening in the church. But now, someone is being stoned. Someone's being killed for his faith. What happened? Well, the gospel happened. Got to take a step back, though. The first church, like any good church, has a problem. There are too many mouths to feed, and a rift begins to divide the church. The Greek-speaking Christians believe they are not getting as much food as the Hebrew-speaking Christians, and they start to fight. The very first church fight is about food. Can you believe it? Of course you can, because we're still fighting about food. But here's the best part. You know what the church does? First problem first problems about food, they decide, you know, we need to fix this problem, and the best way to solve this problem, we need to form a committee. Some things never change. They start a committee, the original 12 apostles, they get together and say, what are we going to do? How are we going to feed all these people? They decide, they discern, they pray that we need seven new apostles. We're going to call them deacons. Stephen is one of the seven. His job is to feed the widowed and the orphans so that the 12 apostles can continue to preach and teach and pray and tell the good news. Meanwhile, Stephen and the other six are going to feed those who are hungry. It's ordinary work, really, when you think about it. Making food for those who are hungry. It's nothing fancy. It's not even complicated. It's just his faith made manifest in an act of love. And yet there is something different about Stephen. Something strange in the book of Acts. It says that he's full of faith in the Holy Spirit. He's full of God's grace and power. He does wonders and miracles among all the people. In other words, beautiful and surprising things start to happen around Stephen. Things that make people think and wonder. Things that turn people to God. We see here, even at the genesis of the church, the beginning of the church, to follow Jesus means something like people are able to look at your life and see traces of grace. They can tell that there's something different about you, that you have a peace or a presence or a purpose that sets you apart. So Stephen is special. He's different. But that's hardly a reason for murder. So what happened? If Jesus is Lord, it means that no one else is. If Jesus is Lord, it means no one else is, and that will always make people with power nervous. And what do powerful people do when they're nervous? They use their power to stop being so nervous. There are some who do not like what Stephen is doing. And not because he's feeding the orphaned and the widow. They're fine with that. They're upset that he's doing it because of Jesus. Charges are lobbed against him. He's brought before the synagogue. They say, oh, he's a blasphemer. He, he said unkind things about Moses. And yet, Scripture says, they apparently cannot withstand the wisdom with which he speaks Oddly, they say that everyone in the synagogue, they look at his face and they describe it like he has the face of an angel. 
the face of an angel. An angel is a being who has seen the glory of God. Have you ever seen an angel? Have you ever met someone who's seen the glory of God? But they're still upset. They drag him before the high priest. He wants to know if all the accusations are true. What comes next is, without a doubt, the best sermon in the whole Acts of the Apostles, which is a bit ironic when you think about it. Stephen's been told, we don't need you to preach or pray or teach. We need you to feed people. And yet now he stands and he preaches this incredible sermon, far better than the one Peter preaches on the day of Pentecost. His sermon is so good, it cost him his life. He tells the story of God, of Israel, of Jesus. He shows how Jesus is at the heart of God, how God has tried every way imaginable to get close to us, that God will never, ever give up on us. He tells the story of salvation. He says, from Abraham until now, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, all the prophets, God has rejoiced in being our God. God has shown up for us. God has made a way where there's no way. God has made the impossible possible, and every time we reject it. We reject the covenant with Abraham. We reject the law from Moses. We reject prophet after prophet after prophet. But God still loves us. God keeps trying. God won't give up on us. It seems like all of you have given up on God, Stephen says. You've betrayed the Lord. Basically, he says to them, it's funny that you accuse me of breaking the law. You all should take a good, hard look in the mirror. You can imagine how well that went because it seals his fate. They are enraged. Scripture says they grit their teeth at him. And then filled with the Spirit in a moment of grace, Stephen looks out and he sees a vision. He says, wow, I see the heavens opening up. I see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of God. Stephen sees the glory. But the crowds have none of it. They cover their ears. They begin to scream, to drown out Stephen's witness. They don't want to hear the truth. Have you ever met anyone like that? Who will cover their ears and scream because they don't want to hear it. They don't want to hear it because if he's telling the truth, it means they are now the ones in judgment. And the violence that has been bubbling under the surface this whole time, it springs forth. They drag him out of the city. They begin to take off their cloaks. They lay them at the feet of a man named Saul, otherwise known as Paul. And the moments right before his end, Stephen prays out to God. He echoes Christ's own word from the cross. He says, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Lord, do not hold the sin against them. And he dies. It's a violent story. Here in the Bible, it's a reminder of what the church stands for, the cost of discipleship. Stephen somehow understands, even in his death, that forgiveness is at the heart of the gospel. It's what his whole sermon's about, how God has this unrelenting love for a stiff-necked people, even us. Even in his death, he is willing to forgive those who are killing him. The gospel is a story, it's a promise. A promise about Jesus. It's radical stuff, I think. It has the power to build up and destroy. It has the power to make the first last and the last first. It has the power to change the world. It's a story. There's no life without story. We're storied people. We tell stories to the young to teach them how to be in the world. We tell stories even at the end of our days. We only understand life by story. Stephen stands accused because another story has interrupted his life. 
It's the story of Jesus. That story has changed his life. So that he is oriented toward the last, the least, the lost, the little. All while telling the story. The story changed his life. There's another one whose life was changed by the story. His name's Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He was a German theologian and pastor, famous for saying these words, When Christ calls someone, he bids them to come and die. When Christ calls someone, he bids them to come and die. It's a very prophetic word from a 20th century German prophet who was eventually murdered for speaking out against the rise of Hitler and the Nazis in Germany. All because the story of Jesus changed his life. There's another person whose life was changed by the story of Jesus. And it was Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., who, addressing the crowds that marched on Selma in 1965, said, I can't promise that it won't get you beaten. I can't promise that it won't get your house bombed. I can't promise that you won't get scarred up a bit. But we must stand for what is right. If you haven't discovered something worth dying for, you haven't found anything worth living for. Which again... A very prophetic word from a 20th century prophet who later was murdered because of what he stood for and what he stood against. Martyrs, that's what we call them. The likes of Stephen and Bonhoeffer and Dr. King. Those who die for their faith. The history of the church is full of martyrs for the blood spilled in the name of the gospel because the gospel always stands in contrast to the expectations and the values of the wor world. Martyr, it's a Greek word. It just, it's the word martus. It just means witness. If you live according to the witness of Jesus, it will put you at odds with other people. Living according to the gospel means living like Jesus. Seeking out the lost, loving the unlovable, and even forgiving the unforgivable. Notice again, Stephen's life and his death are shaped by Jesus' life and death. Jesus fed the crowds for no reason other than the fact that he wanted to. Same is true for Stephen. When Christ dies on the cross, he says, Father, forgive them. They do not know what they're doing. What does Stephen say? Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And I know this is a difficult word to hear. I know it isn't easy. The gospel isn't easy. All of us here in this room, we live in a country in which our religious practices, they're not only tolerated and free, but they're also seen as being kind of normal. So there, I think, is a dissonance between what we're reading about in Scripture and what our faith looks like day to day, the faith of the martyrs. It's hard to hear this because chances are not one of us in this room will ever die for our faith. It's as simple as that. And yet, the gospel will end all sorts of things in our lives. It will bring about the death of lots of little things if we walk in the ways of the Lord. Scripture says that the gospel will end relationships. Jesus says, I have come to set man against his father and daughter against her mother. It was really weird to say those words in front of my own father this morning. I have come to set man against father and daughter against mother. The gospel will end the accumulation of wealth that we have in our bank accounts. Jesus says, sell all that you have and give the proceeds to the poor. The gospel will end our sense of security. Jesus says, turn your cheek, go the extra mile, pray for your enemies, love your enemies. The gospel will end our security. Turn the other cheek. The gospel will even end our lives. Jesus says, those who want to save their lives will lose them, and those who lose their life for the sake of the gospel will save them. 
And yet it's all remarkably and even hilariously good news. Because the Lord we worship came to raise the dead. And that means that we, like Stephen, like Bonhoeffer, even Dr. King, we can do wild things as sinners and saints. Because when we lose our lives, we discover that Jesus is our life. And if Jesus refused to condemn the crowds, if Stephen asked God to not hold the sin against them of the ones who killed him, then it means we can be good or bad or everything in between, and nothing can hold a flame to the candle that refuses to let us go. Nothing can ever stop God's love. The good news, the really good news, is that forgiveness is the heart of the gospel. That no one is outside the realm of God's grace. Notice Stephen, when he's dragged out of the city, when he pronounces grace and forgiveness, the crowds begin to take off their cloaks and they lay them at the feet of a man named Saul. It's important that Stephen and Saul are here together. It's a pivot point in the Bible. Things are starting to change. Stephen loses his life to gain the gospel. Meanwhile, Saul is so hell-bent on holding on to whatever he thinks his life is that he's willing to kill other people in the name of his faith. It's only later, just a few days later, after the martyrdom of Stephen, after going out to destroy and persecute the church, that Paul will see the glory. Jesus will knock him down, blind him even, with the word of forgiveness. Paul, why are you persecuting me? I have a job for you to do. There's good news. And you're going to be the one to share it with the world it's always fascinating to me that Paul is here when Stephen is killed. That this man will later be the one who writes, For through the law I died to the law, so that I might live for God. I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. The story of the gospel is a promise that no one is outside the realm of God's love and mercy, that the worst thing is never ever the last thing, and that grace is always greater than our sin. Do you want to see the glory? Do you want to have the face of an angel? I can't promise that it will be easy. I can't promise that it will come without a cost. But Dr. King was right. We must stand for what is right. Because if we haven't found something worth dying for, then we haven't found anything worth living for. Do you want to see the glory? So I offer this to you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. One God, now and forever. Amen.